Welcome everybody. My name is Damian Shield. I'm the Senior Director for the Institute of Medical Simulation at the Center for Medical Simulation. And it's my pleasure to be the host and producer of today's weekly webinar, The Reluctant Scholar. I'm joined uh, by colleagues and friends, Dr. Mary Fay, Dr. Jenny Rudolph, and Dr. Susie Cardon-Egren, and they will be uh, talking with you uh, this morning or this afternoon, wherever you find yourselves, about their journey uh, in scholarship. And um, I, I, I'll just share with you a couple of ideas and uh, about my role for you today. I mentioned I'm, I've convened the session. I'll be working in the background, attending to your questions. We're very interested in having this be an interactive opportunity as the series is meant to connect all of us internationally while we're socially distant and uh, working remotely. So there's a button on your Zoom called Q&A and that's where we'll ask you to uh, pose your thoughts and questions as we go through the presentation. Towards mm -hmm. the final 15 minutes is when we'll have uh, the panel address those topics specifically if they didn't come up in the presentation itself. The um, uh, other idea I wanted to uh, connect with you about was to tell you, uh, because many of you are already been to the Center for Medical Simulation, but for some of you, this is the first time. So just a bit of background. The Center for Medical Simulation, we're an independent nonprofit here in the Boston area. We're uh, primarily started as a patient safety institute using experiential learning and simulation to teach clinicians and of the last 15 years have been uh, as well working in faculty development. We've been described as a uh, think tank or a framework factory. Uh, by the way, those are forms of scholarship, but of course we do a lot of research as well. And our um, interest is to improve patient safety through healthcare simulation and uh, this series is part of that. So I'll, uh, uh, really won't keep us from the main program, and uh, we'll hand over to my colleague Mary Fay, and you can do introductions and take it from here. As I mentioned, I'll be in the background, and I'm myself really looking forward to this presentation um, from uh, all of you very accomplished scholars. So thank you and welcome. Thank you so much, Damien. Um, good morning, everybody, and uh, I want to thank <laughs> Damien for all the hard work that's gone into putting these weekly webinars together. It's been exciting for us to participate in them and it's such a great opportunity to interact with so many of you um, in this world where we're currently not interacting with so many people. Mm -hmm. So it's a real pleasure to be here. This morning with two of my good friends um, and also people that I would consider uh, mentors to me. So um, my name is Mary Fay. Uh, my formal title at the Center for Medical Simulation is the Senior Director for Teaching and Learning. Um, and I've been involved in uh, nursing and education for many, many years. And uh, my most recent um, five years at the Center for Medical Simulation where I've really focused on debriefing, but mostly debriefing at the faculty development level. So we're fortunate enough to work with people from all health professions from all around the world um, to help them have those difficult kind of developmental conversations. And it's, it's just been a joy and a pleasure on top of many other joyful, pleasant positions I've held over the years. And I'll talk about that uh, some as I, as I tell. My story um, on my road to scholarship, which um, was indeed um, as very much the reluctant scholar, certainly not a label I ever would have put on myself. Um, so I'm gonna turn to uh, my friends, Jenny and Susie, and ask them to introduce themselves. Jenny? Thank you, Mary. Well, everybody, I'd like to start my introduction by telling you that I was demoted from third grade because I was such a poor scholar. I didn't know how to do my times tables. I didn't know how to write script. And when I arrived at the Maharani Gayatri Devi School for Girls in Jaipur, India, I was promptly sent back. And I told my mom I was terrible at school and I was just gonna focus on sports. So the rest of my life basically has been about my reluctant journey from being an athlete and a jock to uh, figuring out how to make things that I'm really interested in fun to study. Um, 
So in that spirit, I now am the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation, where we conduct a lot of research on how do you communicate, learn, debrief, have difficult end-of-life conversations. And I got here almost kicking and screaming, and so I'll tell you a little bit about how I arrived at this place uh, in my life journey, and possibly, I hope, some ideas for you about how the many, many mistakes I've made and the things I've learned might assist you. Thanks, Jenny. You poor thing. Walked <laughs> out of third grade. <laughs> All right, Susie. Okay, so I'm Susie Cardong Edgren, and um, I have always been a geek, and I uh, love being a geek. And my part in this talk will be um, helping you find your own geekiness and uh, looking forward to sharing that with you. And I'll just kind of leave it there for now. <laughs> can, I, can I just brag on, on Susie's behalf yeah, for one second, please. Mary? Yeah. So folks, it's really exciting to have Susie Cardung Edgren here because among her many um, geeky accomplishments is being part of the leadership of the National Council of State Boards of Nursing here in the United States study that found that doing 25 to 50% simulation instead of clinical hours led to equal or better amounts of nursing uh, accomplishment and competency. And she is one of the um, most um, diverse scholars uh, in the simulation world. And so I'm thinking we're all gonna learn some really interesting things about what she has to say. And I'm glad you brought that up, Jenny, because when I, they called me to be in that study, I said, how do you even know who I am? I said, because I was sitting in my office as a little snotty-nosed assistant professor, and I get the call, and I was just like, what are you saying to me? You know, we want you to help with this study, so more about that later. So remind me if I forget that, okay. <laughs> And one thing I've learned about Susie Cardon Edgren is don't ever express a good idea in front of her. That is correct. Yes, you should do that. That's an article. So let me show you my quilt that they gave me because they were so happy I was leaving my last job. <laughs> so I'm going to put it up here because on it, it says one of the things they enshrined for me was my little thing that says that's there's an article in that. <laughs> so they printed that on here for me. And this is, uh, I won't show you the whole quilt, but it's there because that's one of my famous sayings. So it you'll is. hear more about that when it's my turn. <laughs> well, with that super fun start to the webinar, ladies, shall we jump in? Yes, I'm excited <laughs> to connect go. with everybody. Yeah. Okay. So um, once again, thank you everyone for joining us today. And here, here's what I would like to spend our time together doing. Um, really examining what is scholarship. I know for me, when I heard the word scholarship, I thought all that meant was doing research studies. Scholarship is actually much more than that, as Damien mentioned in his intro. And then I would like for us to help you think about the different paths to becoming a scholar. My guess is that most of you on this call right now are probably engaged in something in your job that you're really excited about doing. And I think that that to me is the path to becoming a scholar is find something that you love, get really, really good at it, and then help other people understand it. And so we'll sort of be doing that by telling you our personal stories um, on our journeys to becoming reluctant scholars. And then um, we hope that we'll have time at the end, 10 or 15 minutes um, for some dialogue with you, which can be questions about scholarship, or it may be that you're working on a project right now and you're kind of find yourself a little bit stuck and might want to um, tap us for some ideas and we'll be happy to help with that also. To get us started though, what I would like you to do or what I would like to know is how many people that are with us today see themselves as a scholar. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is raise your hand by going down to the bottom of your screen, clicking on the little icon that says participants and then a box should pop up with a little um, uh, uh, tab on it that says raise hand. And if you would just click on raise hand, if you see yourself as a scholar.
I'll give it about 10 more seconds here. All right, so a third-ish of people um, who are on this call see themselves as scholars. My goal is that by the end of this call, that number will have increased some. But you know, I have to say, when I think about things I want to be when I grow up, scholar was never one of them. Because to me, it just sounds kind of boring. It's research studies and dusty bookshelves and academic regalia and p-values and who on earth would want to do that? I always saw myself a little differently. I'm an ICU nurse. I like action. I like real work. I like being in the trenches, saving lives, working with the rest of the healthcare team, doing stuff that's exciting, that gets my heart rate up. And I loved my career as an ICU nurse. And then I moved into academia and I thought, well, you know, I have some free time on my hands. Maybe I should go back and get my PhD, which is literally how much thought I put into getting my PhD. And so I did. I uh, started in the PhD program at the University of Maryland. And a funny thing happened to me during that PhD program. And for those of you that have done it, um, you also know what the experience is like, which is it's not the work that you do when you're getting your PhD that is the big accomplishment. It's the transformation in the way you think when you're getting your PhD that is the real accomplishment. And on the road to getting my PhD, I happened to go to this instructor training course at the Center for Medical Simulation and fell in love with the idea of debriefing and teaching with simulation because it allowed me to work in partnership with my learners in ways that I never had been able to before. And so I really wanted to study debriefing. And so that's what I did in my PhD program. And, and um, my study was actually the first really solid national level look at debriefing in undergraduate nursing programs in the United States. And I presented those findings at the National League for Nursing Education Summit. And Carol Durham, who was then the president of Anaxel, and Elaine Tagliarini, who was the chief program officer for the NLN, happened to be at my presentation. And we just had a hallway conversation afterwards about the fact that we had all these people doing debriefing that had no training at all and never had their competence assessed. And we decided, you know, let's have a think tank at the National League for Nursing and bring together people who were active in debriefing to talk about what can we do. And so from that came the debriefing across the curriculum NLN vision statement, which was a partnership between, I was at the NLN at the time, um, the NLN and um, in Axel. Um, that I have since found out is the most downloaded document in all the vision series of the National League for Nursing. It's been downloaded or viewed over 70,000 times. A partner um, publication to that was the NLN vision statement about debriefing across the curriculum. And so I found myself suddenly writing things and doing things that were getting national and international exposure. And then one of my mentors and one of the members of my dissertation committee, Dr. Sharon Decker, um, was part of the team that was initially pulled together to create the standards of best practice for simulation. And Sharon called me up and said, hey, we really would like to have you on the team to write the standard of practice for debriefing. Are you interested? Was I interested? Oh my gosh, this was so cool. It was so exciting. I love debriefing. I was studying it. I was doing more and I wanted to help people learn what I had learned over the years. And so I participated in the development of that standard. And then one of my other mentors, Dr. Joe Lopriato, um, was involved with the Society for Simulation in Healthcare as they were developing the certification programs. Something else I really believe in, I believe in external validation of our, our knowledge, skills, and abilities. He asked me if I'd be interested in helping with the CHSE exam development uh, process. And I said, oh yeah, that sounds like so much fun. I would love to do that. So helped with that. And then when we decided to develop the CHSE advanced certification program, um, they asked me if I would be the first chair of that subcommittee, which I did. And it was so much fun. I was working with these smart people from all over the country. And we were sort of struggling with this question of what is an advanced simulationist? And 
through the standards development that we did, what we essentially did was charted the professional development path for simulation educators. And it was really cool and exciting and was embraced by the simulation community as a whole, which I thought was really neat. Um, there were a couple of uh, research studies that I did publish, um, not because I love p-values, but because it was about debriefing and especially my qualitative study. I got to sit around with students and ask them, what is it about debriefing that you think helps you learn? And so I was discovering new knowledge from their perspective, which was really cool to me. And then one of the things that I'm really proud of is my collaboration with uh, my good buddy, Dr. Sue Fernares at the National League for Nursing. Um, and we co-edited the first edition of Critical Conversations, which is to help nurse educators have learning conversations with their students. And uh, Sue and I just finished the second edition of that, which will be out in October. And so I look back over all this stuff and I think, how did a bricklayer's daughter from Northeastern Pennsylvania ever end up doing all of this cool stuff? And, you know, it really is because I was always doing something that I loved and that I was excited about. And I was working with people that I liked and respected. But there's still not a lot of research in here. So am I really a scholar? And so I looked a little bit more into what is scholarship? And there was a study that was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching uh, back in 1990 that looked at Boyer's model of scholarship and went on to really define four categories of scholarship that I'll share with you now. The first one is the scholarship of discovery. And this is what most of us think of when we think of scholarship. It's research. It's transforming questions you have. I wonder if or I wonder how into usable knowledge for the field. The other category of scholarship that they defined, defined was the scholarship of application. And, and they said that the scholarship of application was putting knowledge that we already had to work in the real world. And I think one of the greatest and worldwide impact um, examples of this was um, Rachel Carson back in the 60s, who saw the link between use of pesticides and decreasing wild bird populations and wrote her book, Silent Spring, which alerted all of us to the dangers of pesticides and chemicals in our environment. Um, I think an, an example from our world is to think about Jeff Cooper and David Gaba, who working in anesthesia saw the possibility to improve patient safety by giving people real world practice in a realistic environment and really launched the practice of healthcare simulation. One of my favorite people, Dr. Jenny Rudolph, I would put firmly in the category of the scholarship of integration with the work she's done at the Center for Medical Simulation. And the scholarship of integration is pulling together um, disparate bodies of knowledge, working across professions and disciplines to solve real problems. And so Jenny took what she knew of organizational behavior, social psychology, um, adult learning theory, and she put that all together to develop what we now think of as the with good judgment approach to debriefing or teaching or, or coaching people. And then the last category of scholarship that they defined was the scholarship of teaching. And teaching is really just valuing good theory and best practices and using that to inspire the next generation of scholars. And so as I think about myself and my journey to being a reluctant scholar, I would really put myself in the categories of the scholarship of teaching and the scholarship of application, you know, because I see you nurses like me who like to do real stuff, like to live in that world of application. We'll let the Susie Carden Edgrins be the discoverers. And as soon as she does that, I'm going to take that knowledge and I'm going to make it work for real people in real settings. So that's the story of my journey to scholarship. And I think if there's a message in all this, it's do what you love and the scholarship will come. Do what you love and share it with other people and the scholarship will come. So I'm gonna move on now and I'm gonna have Jenny come on screen. And uh, so Jenny, I heard you say <laughs> that after almost flunking out of elementary school, uh, you told your mom you were just going to forget about school, you were just going to focus on sports because you're a jock. And I hear that, that was the beginning of your research career. So tell me about that. Yeah, Mary. Um, thank you. So 
I um, basically uh, spent all my time after school every day either playing basketball, uh, football uh, with my friends who were mostly boys, and um, baseball because uh, I'm an Amer I grew up in the USA uh, when I wasn't in India. And that was really my lifeblood. I probably would have been a drug addict if I hadn't had sports. Um, and so when I went to college, I finished college and I was like, geez, is this really all there is? I learned all this sociology and stuff and it's still so boring to me. And so instead of getting a real job, much to my parents' chagrin and upset after having invested a lot of money and sending me to Harvard College, I rode on the US rowing team for two years. And that was the most fun I had had in my life. And that actually led me eventually to simulation because we practiced rowing, we videoed ourselves, we had analyzed the videos and so on. But in that process, I realized I was getting really not the best coaching. So if you don't mind flipping to our next slide, Mary, I said, there's got to be a better way to learn rowing because I want to win the world championships, which by the way, the US lightweight team did win in 1995 when I was on the team. Um, we had to damn well get better. And so what I thought was, how could I talk to all the best rowers and figure out what are their tricks for certain things? So the way that you could apply this to our current environment, Mary and everybody is, Think about this, rowing is basically a procedure. You roll up to the front of your boat, you put the oar in the water and you pull it back and you do that over and over. And what I found is I was getting very disparate coaching from all my different coaches and they were all clashing with each other and I just couldn't feel like I was getting better. So what I did is I joined forces and if you don't mind clicking to the next slide, Mary. Sure with my good buddy, Paul Fuchs, who was a um, uh, longtime member of the US men's rowing team. And we just set out to figure out what were all the best tricks of the best rowers to get better. And we basically went around and did qualitative interviews. We really didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know it was called qualitative interviewing. And we were like, how do you get better at this? How do you get better at that? How do you get better at the other thing? And we basically distilled that into these two sets of articles, which got published in a magazine called U.S. Rowing. <laughs> so at this point, you had a bachelor's degree? Yeah. But you didn't know anything about research? No. I mean, I had had to take like sociology statistics and stuff, which right. is what had taught me that I was definitely not going to be a researcher. <laughs> so you get published in the rowing world. You could have spent a whole career being a rowing coach or something along those lines. So how'd you get from there to the Jenny Rudolph we all know and love today? So Mary, um, if you don't mind, we're going to actually um, uh, click past the next slide, which I just put in. This is me a little bit before. Uh, sorry, this, uh, that's me uh, when I got uh, demoted. Um, <laughs> from third grade, I was living in India. And you can see I was happy about doing stuff, uh, traveling around, but not being in school. So that I just wanted to throw that in for fun. So let's go on to the next one and I'll answer your question. So, and click one more time, Mary. So I went on from rowing to start rock climbing. Um, and again, I found that I was not being able to advance in my rock climbing as quickly as I wanted. And you all can sort of start seeing here that I'm really interested in learning curves. How do you actually get better? What are the procedures for getting better at procedures? And what happened, Mary, to bring me to the um, Center for Medical Simulation and my current work is I realized, you know, as much as I love rock climbing, as much as I love rowing, I actually have to make a living now. And so um, wouldn't it be great if all the simulation stuff that I've done for climbing and I've done for rowing could be applied in the real world and actually make a difference in people's lives? So fast forward a little bit. I um, have gone from being a manager of a small company that did contract research, which I actually you know, somehow figured out how to oversee, even though I didn't exactly know what I was doing. Um, to being a doctoral student in organizational behavior. And again, 
I went to be a doctoral student, not because I thought I wanted to do research, but because I was so disappointed with myself as a manager and a leader. I like felt like I was constantly making mistakes. Like I'd tell somebody to do a project, they wouldn't do it. And I'd be like, what's up with them? Why aren't they motivated? And I would have no clue why they weren't motivated. So I started my scholarly journey into the PhD world to try to find out the answers to how do you actually work with people? How do you lead people, et cetera. And in the course of those studies, Mary and everybody, I realized I was really interested in error and medical error. And I happened to be a young mother. My first daughter had just been born and I didn't want to travel. And I lived in Boston. I was like, perfect, I'll study medical error. And I ended up at the Center for Medical Simulation trying to figure out how do you balance another passion of mine, which is mindfulness and awareness, while you're in the middle of a surgical crisis. So my PhD research ended up being how do you manage fixation error when all everything's going to hell in a handbasket, but you still need to keep your brain working, you still need to clinically manage the patient, you still need to communicate with others. So once again, I was just trying to solve a problem I was interested in, which is how do we maintain mindfulness in the middle of a crisis? And so basically, Mary, that's been my pattern. I hated giving feedback. I really didn't want to hurt people's feelings. I thought it was very wimpy when I avoided giving feedback. And so that's how I arrived at developing the with good judgment debriefing approach, feedback approach, because I was struggling with how to do it. And so once again, I kind of use that same strategy of looking across the literature, and in this, this case, not interviewing rowers, not interviewing climbers, but interviewing the literature, essentially, which is something you can do as a scholar. And I've done for a lot of my career, which is sort of translational theory, or Mary's calling it the theory of the scholarship of integration. You know, Jenny, there's something, there, there's like this grain of like a little treasure in what you said that I heard that came through, which is that a lot of the research you did, whether it was rowing or rock climbing or, or your work around uh, feedback and debriefing, you didn't approach your scholarship as an expert. Rather, you were really approaching your scholarship with a sense of this like serious curiosity because you were trying to get better yourself. And you know, what's important in that, I think, is that, you know, that term scholar sounds so lofty that I think it can be a little bit intimidating but yet your journey is really one of trying to get better because you recognize something you weren't very good at. So could you just speak a little bit to like that internal motivation? Because I think that's really important. Wow, Mary, I have never thought of it that way before. But of course, as you're talking, you know, my, my Twitter moniker is get curious now. <laughs> um, I am a voracious reader. I am, you know, passionately curious a lot of the time. I you know, I grew up in an academic household. Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine it wasn't actually easy to get sent back from third grade, even though I've sort of made light of it. Um, even as a doctoral student, I was studying system dynamics. I took a year off to study system dynamics at MIT and I failed the basic system dynamics uh, uh, 101 course twice before I finally made it through that course. And I think that tenaciousness is about loving mastery. I like to get better at things and I can't get better at things unless I figure out how others are doing it and put myself in situations where I'm gonna get feedback on how to get better. So I see scholarship essentially as this cool pathway of how am I gonna get up this learning curve? How am I gonna understand this better? How am I gonna be able to do this better? Yeah, so I think that's, the reason I consider myself a reluctant scholar is I'm not as interested in the project of increasing knowledge overall, which I think is important. Thank God for Susie Cardong Edgren and Walter Epic and many other wonderful people that I work with who do that kind of work. I'm passionate about how do we each get better at what we do, so applied learning in scholarship. And I think that's a pathway that many of you on the call can maybe follow, um, each of you will find your own way, but studying things that you care about, mm -hmm. life is too short to study things you don't care about. So studying things you care about really can provide that fuel. Right, agreed. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thank you, Mary.
So I think in contrast, I'm going to bring my friend Susie Cardon Edgren in here, and I have to share this. When Susie and I were talking about getting ready for this webinar, I said, you know, I would describe myself as kind of an emergent scholar. I just sort of do the next cool thing that comes along. And, you know, Jenny has sort of stayed on a path of difficult conversations, feedback and debriefing. And Susie's kind of here and there and everywhere. And Susie said, yes, I would describe myself as an indiscriminate omnivore of research. She does a little bit of everything. She has done everything from studying aromatherapy to studying whether or not it's acceptable to substitute clinical simulation for actual clinical rotations in the education of nurses in America. Quite a difference. So Susie, take it away and tell us your story. Well, thank you very much. I also hadn't really thought about it that way, but I do have a, it's a, it's a different story. It's a little, it's interesting. Um, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college and I went to a Western state type university and uh, hated undergraduate education so much because I did not have a super experienced faculty that it took me 17 years to decide to go back to school to work on a master's. But as I was listening to you two talking, I thought about my t 17 years of working as a nurse and I really loved labor and delivery nursing which is becoming more and more uh, mechanized during the time that I was there. I was actually on the floor when the first electronic fetal monitor arrived when I was in the Air Force overseas. And I realized, oh, this is not going to be good. Um, and so to kind of counteract that technology, I got really good at the counter technology. And I became a really uh, natural granola type la uh, labor and delivery nurse. So I learned all about home birth, water birth, positioning for labor, herbs and aromas to help you while you're in labor, things like that. And got really, really good at that so that I could be the nurse for any kind of person coming through the door. And I wanted to become head of a big OB unit in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they said, you have to have a master's to get that job. So that kind of forced me back into school. And once I went back for a master's, I found I absolutely loved school. And what a gift that was, because um, I then got involved in culture. And my dissertation was on, uh, and this is where you realize lucky happenstances, when you sit around and you have time to think. I said, hmm, we don't seem to be able to teach culture to students very well. And I was sitting at a meeting of the Transcultural Nursing Society and realized uh, I had an aha moment of you can't teach what you don't know. And at the table I was attending, I said, how many of you, uh, what did you learn when you were in school about culture, different cultures uh, and, and birth? And basically, none of us had learned anything, yet the times had changed enough that we were expected to be able to teach it. So my dissertation was in culture, and I loved that. And I uh, then started working on the tenure track. And people told me almost immediately, there's no money in culture. And so you don't want to do that because you have to bring in money for your university. And uh, I was willing to give bypass that because I didn't really care about that. But what I kept hearing was, if the hospital system doesn't support culture, you can do the best interventions on the planet and it's not gonna make a difference for you. And so I thought, you know what, I can buck the university, but I cannot buck the larger medical and hospital systems. So I decided, what would be um, another thing I would love? And at that time, mannequins started appearing. And I got involved in mannequin research almost immediately, could see what was going to happen. And, and sometimes you have gifts, and one of my gifts is being able to see the next big thing. And boy, I knew, um, especially with the first Mediman, okay, this is going to be huge. And I happened to luck into getting the uh, editorship of the clinical simulation and nursing at that point, and had to write it editorial every month and was getting better and better at writing short stuff, long stuff, doing research, and did not realize that when uh, we finally were moving up to the Northwest to what I thought was gonna be my dream job, I would be forced once again into, um, this is what you said you're gonna do, but if you really wanna get tenure here, you're gonna have to do this. And I said, actually, I'm not gonna do that. I said, I don't really care if I get tenure or not. 
And wouldn't you know, as I'm sitting in my office, the phone rings and it's the National Council calling me to say, we would like for you to help consult on this big research study on simulation and 50%, uh, 25%, 10% use in, in uh, substituting for clinical. And I said, I was so thunderstruck. I said, how do you even know who I am? I said, well, how did you find me? And they said, well, we've read your work. And so I'm going to tell you, although it's really fun to go out and speak, the coin of the realm is always going to be in publications. And I wrote a lot. I did a lot of research there and, of course, uh, got notoriety for that study. But the next coolest job I ever got was to be an endowed chair in nursing. And my job was to help people with their scholarly pursuits. <clears throat> and there's actually nothing better than that. Because what I keep finding over and over again is that we've somehow um, happily suppressed people's belief that they have anything to offer anybody else uh, throughout the world. And it is so not true. There are so many brilliant ideas and so many brilliant people who have no idea that they're brilliant all over the place. And they've done this great little body of work in this one place. And when they quit or retire or die, nobody else is going to know that it ever happened. So I will say that one of the skills I developed very quickly, also being an editor, because I had to keep finding articles to put in the journal, which means I have to grow people in simulation who don't normally write because simulation was such a new field. I had to recognize good ideas and then encourage people to write their ideas down. And so one of the things I'm going to say is that you have great ideas, probably, especially in simulation, because we're usually pretty creative people. And you will be told sometimes when you submit articles, and I've had this happen to me, people say, there's no lit review here. You didn't do a lit review. And I said, there's no lit review because this is the first article that's ever talked about this. And so you can say there's a dearth of, a dearth of research in this area or um, few articles are published in this area. And you also start discovering things that people don't want to write about, like death in and, and the uh, help that simulations provided for teaching death curriculum in both medicine and nursing is that we can now simulate deaths uh, pretty realistically in, in simulation. And there are more articles out there about that now than there's ever been. Other things that I have found people that I say you need to really publish about this is trying to teach simulation in another culture. Because when we talk about debriefing, I said, I don't understand how the, um, the hierarchical nature of this particular culture is going to accept the kind of debriefing that we do in the United States where you're kind of in a flat hierarchy. How does that work for you? So there hasn't been a lot of work done in that either. Um, but it's out there and those kinds of ideas, I, when you see them and I see people are doing well at managing those kinds of issues, I'm going to tell you, you need to write. So another thing that came up was we had to move a Sim Center from one spot to another. We did it in three days complete. Uh, there was a lot of tape and stickers involved. And as we did this, I said, you know what, to my ops officer, I said, there's an article in this. And we, we wrote it up and of course it was published because um, it was not common to have to move in a place, completely take it down when you're teaching on one day, have one day to move everything and be up teaching on the next day. But we did it. So those kinds of things are really important. I think my biggest ideas for you would be if you love your work, you won't work a day. If you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. And choose good friends, choose people who uplift you and are crazy like you are with great ideas. I did not know that I was driving my ops officer crazy with my walking into her office and sitting down and processing ideas with her until I noticed that she had a little sign on her big whiteboard and it, it said something about um, one thing after another that I come in and talk with her about, but it had an article or a little um, uh, abbreviation up above it with a line. And I said, what is this? And she said, these are all the ideas you walked in here and told me about. And what I'm thinking is, I'm supposed to do these things. I said, no, 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 no. I'm just bouncing ideas off of you. If we're going to do something, I'll tell you about it. But I need to process things uh, verbally. So um, I tend to walk around talking to anybody who will hold still long enough for me to listen to them also. So there's this give and take that has to happen, I think, when you're finding those friends 
and you want to be able to get more creative yourself and encourage them to write, they will encourage you to write then and it becomes this almost symbiotic relationship that you'll have. So those are the main things that I think I want to share with you. And so my job, instead of being a reluctant scholar, is to help reluctant scholars get their chutzpah on and get out there and start publishing and uh, speaking and sharing their work with others. And I think that's how I will end my talk. Hey, Susie, I've got one uh, question for you. Yes, ma'am. Um, so some ideas would be classified as big ideas. The NCSBN study is a big idea. Yes. Sometimes we have smaller ideas. Yes. And, you know, at times I've been discouraged, uh, and you mentioned this before, of like, oh, you'll never get funding for that. Do people always have to have external funding in order to do a research study? Or has it been your experience that sometimes you've sort of driven a research study just on your, your own guts and energy? That's usually what's happened for me. <laughs> um, it's funny because, again, when I went to my first big R01 type place, which is a high-level research university, they said, oh, you're going to have to get funding for, it, for this work. And I said, I don't understand because I have a brain. I have a mannequin. And I have students who are going to love what I want them to do. And they can sign a consent, but they're probably going to want to do it anyway. So I don't see money involved there. What, what do I need money for? And that was not the right answer, believe me. But um, I've been funded mostly by industry and by people calling me to ask me to do their research for them. I've gotten some smaller grants, but on the whole, um, Everything else has been uh, handed to me on this, I hate to say it, a silver platter, but that's kind of the way it is. Uh, so I, I've been really lucky. Good. Thank you, Susie. So Damien, I think we are getting to the point where we can do, we have some time for questions and answers. If you have some that have come in, we would love to hear them. Yeah, wonderful. And thank you all for your uh, engaging and interesting presentations that maybe you can hear me better now um i the first area i thought uh was a question from uh dr inzana from the institute for health professions a, a local colleague of ours and she's asking about the role of mentorship and uh, i was impressed with several of your um comments around finding a team or working with a buddy uh, people who nourish you, and I agreed with all of that, and I thought this idea of a mentor, um, different from a tour mentor, right? This is like the mentors <laughs> that really help you thrive. Um, how, where did you find them? How did you find them? And any tips on spotting those for you? And if I think we go around that mm -hmm. uh, loop with that, that would be a good first question. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm happy to jump in here um, to get us started. And, you know, I have to say, men, finding the right mentors is so critical, and they will be different at different stages of your career. Um, I, I think as I was first getting started in my career in simulation, um, Sharon Decker was a person who was just so supportive and encouraging to me. We had actually hired her to be a consultant. We were launching a new simulation program at the small college I first worked at. And I learned so much from her. And, you know, she agreed that we could keep in touch after the consultation was over. And she was the one who really pulled me into Society for Simulation Healthcare and Axel. And, um, you know, through her, I met other people. I, you know, one of, the, one of the things that is really true, especially early in your career as you're looking for mentors and trying to launch your career is you have to acknowledge that there's gonna be a lot of volunteer work that you do. So the volunteer work that you do on committees in, you know, helping to write things, a, a lot of that frontline work mm -hmm. connects you to other people, demonstrates your abilities, and, you know, often like Joe Locriato, who I would also consider a mentor, um, saw my work in other things and then invited me to to be on the um, on the certification committee and so um, mentors are just so key and and they can be different mentors for different reasons my phd chair was who man she was the one that taught me that truly good enough is never good enough it's got to be great um 
which is not what Sharon Decker taught me, but Sharon Decker taught me lots of other things. And so I think having a variety of mentors from a variety of sources is key. Susie and Jenny, what do you guys think? Um, I've had many people come up to me and ask me deliberately to mentor them. And sometimes it works out fabulously. And other times you realize after working with each other a bit that it's not a good fit. And I would say it's okay to say this doesn't seem to be working. We don't seem to gel and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And move on to somebody else. But I would say, don't be afraid to ask people, but also when they start giving you advice, I would say then follow it. Uh, because they're giving you their time and their and their best um, advice and if it doesn't work for you then say you know no thanks but if it does then do that because they can open doors for you that you don't even know exist yeah. and and some I can remember looking at people going how did they ever get there well now I know how they got there and I want to help other people get there uh, but you, but you have to also have a little chutzpah on your part to step up and, and ask for that help. Hanging back in the shadows is not the way to go about this. Right. Um, this question about mentors, I think, is so valuable. Thank you, Rebecca, for asking it. Um, I want to talk about two facets of this that I think are a little bit um, un, not as we don't think about as much. So the mentor is not only helping you with your research, but I really think about the mentor as helping you become more you. That can be one of the roles of your mentor. So in that spirit, I'll just say, I have always looked for mentors who make me feel more alive and make me feel like I'm gonna have fun. So some of you on this call may be very familiar with Dan Raymer. He's the reason I came into simulation. I came to this center. He was running a simulation day for residents across the Harvard system. The mannequin blew up. Three other things went wrong. Watching him function in the control room in the debriefing room, I was like, I don't care. Whatever this man is doing, I'm following him. And cool. why cool. I think that's so important is life is short. Don't do stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't love to do if you if if possible. I know we don't all have that luxury. So. Find the person who makes you feel alive. I think that's really fantastic. Uh, that's thing one that I would say. Um, Good point, Jenny. I like that. I love thank that. you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Susie. The other thing I just want to say about being a mentor. So, Rebecca, since you, you kindly asked this question, I'm just going to take you as an example. You came to my office. You, you wrote me an email. You asked if we could meet. Uh, we chatted for maybe 90 minutes or something like that. And you were so grateful that we spent the time together. And I said to you then, and I'm going to say to everybody now, a good mentor recognizes that you are helping carry forth things that they care about. Mm -hmm. You are part of their legacy. So don't be too, don't feel like you're a supplicant. You are someone who cares about what they care about and you're helping their career by following in their footsteps, by using their ideas. And if you are clinging to or seeking after a mentor who, in my opinion, doesn't treat you with that positive regard and recognize what a positive role you have in their, their life meaning, um, maybe it's better to seek a, another mentor. I wanted to say caveat, because somebody was asking about National Institute of Health, R01, more serious funded research. If you're committed to that track, you want to get on the coattails of someone who's been there, done that, knows how to do it. You want to apprentice with them. And if they're a bit of a jerk, maybe that's something you have to tolerate for a while so you can learn the ropes. But that would not be my choice of how to do things for myself. Very practical advice. Very. So we have about five more minutes. So I thought I would put together a, a couple of questions that I think fit well um, that have to do with time, energy, and outcome. So uh, a couple of folks are asking, uh, I'm, I'm later in my career, is it too late to start? Other folks are asking, well, I'm busy clinician, can I still do it? Um, um, Grace Eng, uh, who's on our faculty and I work with closely at NYU and NYSIM for a number of years said, 
well, what's the, what's the measure of success? Is it number of publications? How do you measure your influence? How do you know you've accomplished it? How do you know you're there? So I thought you guys could maybe puzzle through a little bit of that as a final topic here. <laughs> I'd like to um, say something briefly and then have you add, Damien, if you would, to the person who is the busy emergency physician and it's hard to even get time to have a drink of water. Um, May Ken Smith, who's on our department in, of anesthesia, is on the labor and delivery floor. She's uh, head of our quality and safety committee. I've asked her about her research and, and doing work in the OR. And she said, really trying to make things count twice as George Bordage from University of Circle Campus uh -huh. uh, in Illinois says, anything that you're doing don't say yes to things unless you can also somehow study them if you want to study them and get partners who will join you in that make it count twice approach because you don't have the time to do them separately would be my take. It is, when it says when you want to go fast, go alone. When you want to go far, go to, you know, go in a team. And I think that's really important uh, because when one person is kind of lagging, another person can pick up the slack and keep everything going. And that's how you end up if you care about it with lots of publications. And what I would say is the only thing that publications get you is that your work is there forever. It's as close as you can get to immortality without dying. And that's great. So it's, and, and it gets your name out there. So it's not who you know, it's who knows you which is how when they called me from the National Council, that I, I said, how do you even know who I am? Uh, so this because of the work that had been published already. So that is why those kinds of things are important. It's really fun to go speak, but publications are really important. I'll, I'll build on that, Susie, to say one of the most influential things that a mentor ever said uh, when I was trying to like get my writing and my scholarship was, well, Damien, like, do you feel like you have something to say? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm a talker, so of course I have something to say. But she was like, no, no, really, like, what are your ideas that you want to get out there? Yeah. And then I think this ties back to Jenny's question and the audience to say, well, of all the things you could spend your time on, what, what do you want to talk about? What are you excited about? And I uh, recently um, working on rewriting the debriefing chapter for the society's textbook and which we first wrote seven years ago and i noticed i had something to say then but i just you know can have so many more things to say now and i think part of what made is making writing easier and more fun for me right now is knowing a lot more of the literature so i think yes <laughs> being a being a reader being a consumer of research getting involved on on review as a reviewer um, I think Susie could, uh, could attest that we need all kinds of reviewers, super statistical yes. experts, but also frontline educators who would just be the consumers of that research and learning to read and talk about research and knowing the literature just makes writing so much more fun. And you make a really good point, Damien, and let me dovetail on that in that one of the big gaps that we have in simulation is everybody wants to be a researcher. And there's tons of research done and then nobody uses it. So one of the most important um, things to do is translate. Use that research, try it out, see if it works. Because a lot of times, especially in the ran randomized controlled clinical trials of the drug world, when they turn a drug loose into the real environment, it doesn't work the same way. And why is that? Because real people are using it, not people who are trapped in a small room for two weeks and they have control of everything you eat, sleep, drink, you know, everything that you do. So using the research and then writing about using the research is really important too. And getting back to the research and researchers and saying, hey, you know, I tried this and it didn't really seem to work the way that you said it would. And sometimes then some kind of collaboration will come from that because you've got information that they need. So I, I would say it's important to think about those kinds of things too. You know, Susie, that also uh, makes me wonder, I'd like to get your thoughts on 
the value of replicating studies because I know, especially in the world of, of nursing simulation, a lot of the studies that are done are very small. They're done one time. You know, it's really hard to, to interpret or generalize those studies. So what, what are your thoughts on the value of replicating a study that's already been done? I think it's huge. And I don't know why we resist it so much. The other thing that's important is if you're going to replicate a study, if you can get a multi-site study out of it, you know, find your friends and you all agree, um, it adds uh, immensely to the complications that are going to happen with trying to plan something, but you get more bang for your buck then. So if you're going to do it, I would try to make it count. And I think implicit in this question, Mary, I think might be what studies to replicate. So I think when mm -hmm. the outcomes of the initial study are unbelievable or really go counter to what you were hoping or give you other questions, maybe the initial study may have looked at one aspect, but you believe there's a couple of other angles on right. that same question, then I think replicating yeah. or building on the study. I just think also we have to all get better at writing our methods section or Create mm -hmm. new ways of doing that because when I see a simulation was created, blah blah blah, and then a debriefing was conducted, I have no idea what went down in right. either of those rooms. And so, how you know, how could you replicate that? Well, we're you, down to the to the David, end. So, would you like to ask your uh, hand raising question before I, we uh, wrap up? Yes, uh, please. I would like to ask my ending question. So, we've talked about many different kinds of scholarship. I would like you guys to go back to the raised hand button and click on that if you now see potentially yourself as a scholar, reluctant or otherwise. And after that, I'll um, sure. make sure we get out of here on time. So okay. um, we're almost done. And thanks to everyone who stuck with us. Yes, thanks so much. Um, let's see. Well, the raw numbers are different, but the percentage now is about half. We started out with about a third. Seeing themselves as scholars, we got up to about half. I'm pretty happy about that. How's the p-value on that, Mary? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a researcher. <laughs> I think it's significant. <laughs> well, it is significant. Um, I, I, I think um, for those of you who, who don't know and work with Susie, Mary, and Jenny, if I might take the liberty of calling you by your first names, um, I, I think they've brought their authentic humility to the topic. And I, I really don't think they're downplaying their own view of themselves that this is really, um, as for successful as they are, this is exactly what's taken them uh, to be there and to have shaped all of us. So um, I hope that uh, you find some inspiration and some excitement here and uh, certainly don't go at it alone. Um, the, um, I have a, uh, we have, we, we're very interested in feedback. And so before I do that, you know, I was thinking, I think of peer review, because I think scholarship and publishing do go hand in hand. Peer review, whether it's the traditional way of submitting to a journal and getting reviewer comments um, and also the outcome of finally getting it in print is a beautiful form of feedback. I know my work has gotten better every time I do submit it. Um, and I also, I think it's a really a recognition when you finally get to see your, your mm -hmm. PDF there. But I think there's also some modern ways of peer review. There's open peer review, there's blogs, podcasts, a lot of different ways to do scholarship, including curriculum design. Um, for the weekly webinars, next week is a workshop. It's a two-hour workshop on feedback. Uh, Janice Palaganis uh, is one of our faculty and I think really world-renowned uh, for feedback and curriculum innovation. It's going to lead a uh, feedback workshop, two hours. There's also a longer version of that course that we offer. And uh, I would like to invite you and welcome you to that next week and then subsequent weeks We'd love for you to return when we're going to uh, continue with these panel presentations, begin a series of inside the simulation studio or uh, ask us anything panels. And so we'll really make it more interactive. And finally, um, we're also going to be doing meet the authors. So we, we, we do want to promote scholarship and uh, we'll be doing that in that in that format, bringing you 
conversations with the authors um, in the healthcare and education and quality and safety. Um, uh, we uh, really do love collaboration. And so if you think that uh, Mary or I or others at CMS can help you move your projects forward, whether it's around uh, implementation science or scholarship or anything around simulation and education, do reach out um, so we could talk about what's next for you all and how we might collaborate on that. I really appreciate everyone's uh, attention and collaboration here. Uh, to my colleagues, thank you. And to everyone else, see you next week. Thank you, Damien.